0: Hey everybody, this is Lucas Holmgren. I want to discuss a subject that is very controversial and it has to do with stocking rivers with fish, I guess technically hatchery fish, although that's something I'd like to talk about. And this is a subject that has some scientific consensus, but no matter what, there's a lot of ideologies and beliefs and, you know, almost religions of a sort towards certain viewpoints on this subject. And I do think, uh, it is important to examine both sides and everywhere in the middle and kind of come to an understanding of steelhead stocking in particular. And that's kind of what I'm going to get into as opposed to salmon, because there's a bunch of different contributing factors and reasons why Certain um, hatcheries make sense, and in certain places, they just don't make sense at all. And so that's something that I'd like to discuss. And one of the things I've noticed is I would kind of classify myself and the people that I enjoy talking to as conservation-minded towards fish and fishing opportunity. Um, But at the end of the day, even at the expense of fishing opportunity, if a fish was truly endangered, these are the type of people that I believe would stop fishing. However, there's that whole argument on whether our angler impact really does anything to these stocks. And we know that over time, there's no question, the percentage of fish that we have in our rivers is dismal along the Pacific coast, especially, you know, where I'm at in southwest Washington, a place that used to be Steelhead Valhalla, according to a uh, a man who does a bunch of stream work and incredible things in southwest Washington, Dave Brown. He, uh, he does some some really cool programs to help some of these rivers and streams that are, are just barely hanging on for dear life with anadromous fish. And uh, he said it was steelhead Valhalla when he first moved there. And then he saw the downfall of it. And, you know, when it comes to steelhead, some of these stockings were in a sense, a little bit later than that original idea of just maintaining massive salmon runs which was such a huge market after the, you know, invention of the can and being able to ship salmon that could be stored on a shelf for a long time all over the world. That's ultimately where the fish runs took a massive dive and there was incredible netting and fish wheels where literally not a single one could get past these barriers and they didn't even think about the, the spawning necessity of just simply fish on gravel. And nowadays, we've had such a downturn in stocking, of course, a difficulty with ocean conditions, and in this season of 2023, and especially the last couple years, with literally the worst recorded summer steelhead runs uh, in history on the Columbia River, as well as um, winter steelhead stocks often taken a nosedive as well. And so this is all over the board. This is all along the Pacific coast at this point in time where steelhead simply are not surviving like they have in other years. I'm going to give you an example, the 96 flood after that, you know, a couple years later, there was a massive increase in steelhead returns to a lot of these creeks. And it's incredible that all that water, you know, I can only surmise that somehow any reds that were You know, in the system somehow maybe magically survived, or they're spawning in small creeks that that could survive. But uh, ultimately I think what it all comes down to is a massive flush of water out of the Columbia River. All this upturning, these nutrients, these smolt and these fry are getting out to the ocean without ever being intercepted by a predator, and so many less predators. And we have incredible predation on smolts and fry going out. I would like to think that even though the sea lions are a horrible issue on adults, uh, predation is just as bad, if not worse, on smolt and fry. So ultimately, kind of the point that I'm getting to is that there's a, a... Coastal decline on the Pacific coast of steelhead, and that includes wild stocks for sure. So, the ocean is a limiting factor on all steelhead at this point in time, but at the same time, there are you know shining little beacons of hope where fish are just doing better. And some of those rivers, you know, in the past couple years, you may have experienced some of the best fishing of your life. But overall, the amount of catches, no doubt, is down dramatically across the entire steelhead uh, realm. Um, But of course, like I just said, you can have incredible times and be thankful for them. But I'd like to talk about stocking and hatcheries themselves. Now, first of all, I would like to say, just out of the gate, I am pro supplementation of steelhead and i just believe that i've seen it work and i know it works historically and scientifically um, supplementation when done properly does work and that's the key factor here now i'm not going to beat the drum of just fighting for Chambers Creek stock hatchery fish, dumping in indiscriminately into small streams and places without any mitigation or you know or healthy hatchery fish opportunity, you know, just indiscriminately doing that with out of basin stocks, I think is kind of going by the wayside. And at the same time, a lot of innovations in brood stocking. Uh, you know, often spearheaded by the tribes, but also uh, done with a lot of angler involvement, um, Oregon programs, Washington programs. Broodstock overall, the idea of it, I believe, is good. However, broodstock itself is not infallible. Uh, the idea of broodstock winter steel, would be, be taking two wild uh, fish and spawning them together. Uh, bucks and hens, wild ones, spawning them together for uh, their offspring to be clipped hatchery, or in some cases, you know, I know of a river where they do a unclipped broodstock for a trap and haul winter steelhead fishery. And so that one has both uh, truly wild born, because there is excellent spawning gravel in, in those areas, and then also a unclipped broodstock there. But overall, that idea of spawning wilds and creating hatchery fish, whether it's for put and take, you know, retention, clipped broodstock descendants, or even unclipped to supplement natural spawning, which I think can be especially um, helpful in in certain cases. But overall, there is different ways to accomplish broodstock. I do think in-basin fish is the best option for planting. But also, there is this idea in broodstocking that you just want to catch a bunch of 20-pound fish and spawn them all together. And now granted, every single one of us would love to catch one of those 20-pound steelhead, be it wild or broodstock or whatever it may be. However, at the same time, the actual steelhead life cycles of healthy Populations and untouched habitat, like the Kamchatka area of Russia on the Pacific Rim, there is so many distinct life cycles of steelhead and rainbow trout, which are steelhead just um, resident. There's so many different life cycles between those 20 pounders and those giant, you know, late wilds. There is a massive amount of diversity in between that. And even though historically, yes, you will see pictures of giant steelhead. That is no question. But at the same time, some of these rivers, when their habitat was untouched, it was a quality um, ocean and you know, not commercially harvested or poached, a lot of these rivers had you know, smaller resident rainbows, larger resident rainbows, depending on the amount of food in the stream. And then you had rainbows that had more of a cutthroat trout type of life cycle where they're just cruising the coast for a couple months or maybe up to a year, gaining a a couple pounds and then coming back in. And then these different uh, timed ocean dwelling steelhead that would go to different parts of the ocean. And return at various times of the year, so there's all this diversity. And if you're only breeding in the most giant of fish, you're accounting for only a small part of that steelhead population that's going to be feeding in certain areas, returning at certain times, and you're relying only on that component of the run. And so, when you can actually spawn in smaller fish, you know, fish that may may have spent um, only a couple months in salt or Uh, a year or two years and those fish are still an important part and they can spawn with a larger fish and create larger fish you know there's there's nothing saying that two smaller fish can't produce a larger fish either yes some of it is genetics some of it is just the food and the places they go steelhead follow different routes a very diverse range of you know going solo throughout the ocean these fish often will go out by themselves, travel straight across the ocean into all these warm water predators. They're not schooled up as much. They're getting picked off easily. And so these fish have all this diversity in their life cycle and the areas that they go. So it really pays off to breed different sizes and year classes uh, for a broodstock run. Now, there are some rivers that are focusing on bigger fish that are still doing well. I don't want to say that it's not like you won't get fish back, and those are certainly nice, but I think there is a benefit to the overall population as a whole, and it will be more robust year to year, because even if you don't have those big fish, you'll have the smaller runs, and they can kind of compensate for each other. So, I think... I would say ideally, you know, you could even raise uh broodstock resident rainbow trout on a steelhead stream and they will sneak in and spawn with an ocean run steelhead. And there's nothing wrong with that. That happens in the wild all the time. So diversity, but not only diversity of this, uh, of the wild fish that are taken in and spawn together, but I believe another part of this That could contribute to overall better survival of fish is more of a diversity of raising these fish and when you release them and how you keep them. I think if you're keeping a ton of fish in just a concrete um, little rectangle with nothing to it, I do think that those fish may be a little ill prepared or not really aware of their surroundings when you first put them in. Now, luckily, they can often adapt quickly. And do well, but I, I believe there's value in releasing steelhead into the stream at different parts of their, uh, life cycle, whether it be a certain percentage at the fry stage released into the river, unprotected, unfed to see if they can fend for themselves, a certain percentage dropped in at fingerling, um, length and of course matching the temperatures. So they acclimate well. Um, also not just dumping a tube 10 feet, you know, above the water with 50,000 fish being dumped into one pool. And, you know, I've seen this, I've seen a WDFW truck pull up on a special chum project, a plant. Um, and it was scheduled for a day. They had built a chum channel and spent over a million dollars on this whole restoration. It was built over a spring where those fish could actually spawn. And the truck shows up and they go to take their measurements of the water temperature in the chum channel. And it turned out it was a few degrees too warm. And so instead of waiting until the right conditions and driving that truck back and keeping the fish fed and safe, uh, they just decided the uh, WDFW, uh, I don't know who, who made the actual decision. It might have just been the person driving the truck. That Okay, well, we'll just dump it at the mouth of the creek because that temperature is colder. And so those fish did not imprint on that creek and they were dumped in. I saw so many of them stunned on the, on the surface as a fry and dying on the riverbank. And then all these fish and the predators will find out the birds will start flying in and the activity will be known. And I think when you just dump in the entire run in one hole and you're shooting them out of a tube and they they just have no idea what's going on, that's not the most healthy way to stock fish. I would say you, first of all, just... Is there something I'm missing? Why is that tube not right next to the water, just flushing them in so that they don't get stunned? And then uh, second of all, why not release them at different times um, and different stages in different areas of the river? And if you're looking for hatchery fish to not get on spawning grounds, uh, whether or not you think that's an issue or not, I think it's less of an issue than it's uh, made out to be. Especially with in uh, in basin stock, I think it's actually a good thing. But um I don't think it's really gravel getting, you know too competitive. That would meet a a ton of steelhead, even though our environment is not ideal in some of these areas, there is a bunch of good spawning gravel that just plain doesn't get used in some of these areas because there's just not enough fish. so i I you know, I think if you were in a small, creek or a river that had a very healthy wild population and you did overstuff it you know without a basin fish you know I don't know that that's helpful or healthy you know for the original integrity of the run um, but at the same time that's not the issue with most of these rivers. they're not really competing. However, if you do dump a bunch of broodstock smolt maybe they're a healthy size and that's all good and great and they're going to survive well. And they're going to kind of dominate in the food area. You know, maybe there's smaller wild fry and fingerling that that could get outcompeted in a small area if you dumped all the broodstock in one small creek. However, in a bigger river or with diverse stocking, there's a lot less uh, chance or harm in that. So releasing these fish at different stages um, in their life cycle and then not being afraid to take in other diverse smaller fish to spawn with you know for diversity and then also strays are great and you know a few from a different system is not a bad thing uh ultimately this is a diverse fish so i think our stocking should be reflecting that in in our hatchery situations in basin diversity and smart uh, stocking of these fish it will go a long way, and there's a lot of uh, places doing this. There's some hatcheries up in the, uh, the upper Columbia, and I was hearing about this from Larry Cassidy, and he's talking about how they would put their salmon fry uh, in, their, uh, in their pens, but they would put literally like ducks above those fish at times on grates, uh, where they couldn't get to the fish, but the fish learned to be afraid of them. And then they also, uh, fed the fish from below. So the food would come out, um, from the bottom. So the, the fry learned to stay low in the river, which is a good way to protect themselves instead of waiting at the surface for food. And then they also, they also did volitional release where they kind of opened it up, but they didn't force them out. And any fish that wanted to hang out a bit longer, they let them. And then when these fish were ready, they'd take off. And we've seen some excellent salmon stocking in the Columbia that has really reinvigorated our spring, summer, and fall Chinook stocks and to be honest you know we can complain a bit about our smaller fish but ultimately we still have some healthy salmon fisheries in southwest Washington and Oregon you know we've got some good stuff to play with but as far as steelhead it is way more competitive there is a ton of closed rivers so people naturally will go to another river and try to find fish and open fishing and And so when word gets out about a stream very quickly, there's a ton of people there fishing for steelhead. Um, Granted, that happens with salmon as well, but there's a lot more opportunity out there and a lot more rivers open for salmon these days. And, you know, I was just talking with my friend, Scott Harris, and he said, like, you know, there were days back in the day, a couple decades ago, um, where there was no spring Chinook or summer Chinook fishery in the Columbia. And so we do have some... Cool opportunities going on with uh, salmon, but with steelhead, what in the world is going on? It's almost 2024. You know, we, we've been working on some things, but uh, something needs to happen. This is getting rough. There's fisheries getting closed down. The entire, you know, Grays Harbor region, um, you know, some of those, uh, those rivers that flow into national parks uh, shut down. And you know i'm grateful for some fish caught and everything um but it is not a blockbuster season yet i do think there's going to be some great opportunity people that time it right fish some good streams are going to have some phenomenal days and i'm looking forward to some there's you know all it takes is one good fish to make a trip you know incredible um the opportunity is still there. But it's uh, something that you might have to share the stage with people and pick a rock and fish. uh, And, you know, that is a way to be successful. Uh, Or you may have to cover a ton of water and find, you know, something that's not highly pressured. Um, And if you do either one of those things, you know, you should have a good shot at winter steelhead this season but you know i just want to discuss some of my thoughts on broodstock hatchery fish wild fish now one thing i would like to make clear on rivers that have a healthy wild population i think we just focus on habitat work reconstruction good you know creek habitat anything we can do there that that is the move in my opinion in areas that have been more seriously affected by uh over harvest especially commercially as well as dams and places with really reduced habitat i think we need to invest heavily into broodstock programs and overall supplementation and then also experiment with certain streams you know not all of these rivers are the same you don't need the exact same plan for every single one of them they have their challenges there's a lot of reasons there's less fish and we've just got to pick the low hanging fruit and do what we can to have more opportunity spread out so you're not fighting with 20 people for one fish. And that is ideal. Um, There's some ways that you can get involved in this. I would really recommend Hatchery and Wild Coexist um, is a good nonprofit focused in on this. Uh, I've done some work on videos for them. There's two documentaries on uh, the Hatchery Wild Coexist youtube page one is called hatcheries are not the enemy um and then you know we had that uh response video to the patagonia artificial video which unfortunately it just completely misrepresented hatchery fish and pretended it was basically the same as a fish farm ignoring the fact that these fish are released at a young life cycle age, going out to the ocean, survival of the fittest, and coming back. It's a completely different life cycle than a farmed fish. And so Patagonia put out that artificial on Netflix and everything. And so uh, Don New and the crew at Hatchery Wild Coexist, You know they, I, I worked with them putting together the video called Beneficial, and uh, I narrate one of them, one of those videos, and I think I do music for both of them, and I edit them, and they give kind of a basic rundown on on what's going on, and I, I would prefer that every river had just tons of wild fish with some opportunity to harvest where it's right. But at this point, you know, in time, it's 2024 in a day or two here. And I want to wish you guys a happy new year. But we got to get on board and work together. And and that's where I'd recommend checking out Hatchery Wild Coexist. If you can donate, uh, please do. And please mention Salmon Trout Steelheader brought you there. Uh, I think it's a great group. This is this is not a paid ad. This just literally came to me as I was talking about this subject. That that is a group that you can support that's actually doing something Um, there's some other great ones out there, uh, but that's one I'd recommend checking out hatchery wild coexist. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to the salmon trout steelheader podcast. Like I said, I'll get some more, uh, guests on here and it's been a pleasure talking to you in 2023, but it's 2024. Let's see some of those trophy fish you got coming up. Tag salmon trout steelheader on Instagram and, uh, I'll talk with you guys soon.